0: Um, so these are the, the necessary lessons to get through that. So introducing everything on this, um, The Eastern Orthodox Church, as opposed, let's say, the the Western Catholic Church, it developed on an entirely different trajectory compared to the Western Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. Now, they were technically one church in name. There was the church until the year 1054. And in 1054, both sides are going to excommunicate each other. And henceforth, you have the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. But again, we're not at 1054 yet. Um, So what I'm doing in this lesson is I'm going back to the Council of Chalcedon, which was one of the most important creeds ever written um, by the church. It was the Christological creed that more or less settled the biblical answer that, that Jesus Christ, one person... But in that one person subsists two natures, the divine nature and the human nature. And they don't mix. They don't become a third thing. It's no, both the human, humanity's humanity, the divinity's divinity, but they both subsist in the one person. And you would have thought that would have solved everything, but it didn't solve everything. And so what's going to happen is theological controversy is going to rage on for centuries. And then, of course, we're also going to get to Justinian the Great. A lot of times when you focus on Western Europe, you leave Justinian out, but you can't. He was an Eastern king, and he's one of the most significant rulers in all of history. And what he does actually, in many ways, impacts Western Europe for a thousand years. And once the Christological controversies were uh, were finally uh, resolved... Then we will get to a new controversy um, in this uh, eighth and ninth centuries called iconoclasm. So a lot of stuff we have to cover. I'm praying that I'm able to to get it all done tonight. And so moving to the the, the first slide, then um, let me quickly talk about the Byzantine Empire and the the theological disputes, really just to give you, you know, what what we're talking about um, here. So. You may have heard the phrase Byzantine Empire. What is that? It's just the eastern half of the Roman Empire, right? You had the Roman Empire, <clears throat> and after the Council of Chalcedon in 451, historians start calling the eastern half of the empire the Byzantine Empire. Why? Because the western half of the empire is crumbling, and it falls just 20, <clears throat> 25 years later, completely falls. And yet, it just doesn't feel right to call the eastern half of the empire Rome. They saw themselves as Roman. The Muslims saw them as Roman, but Rome is in Europe. You know, and the eastern empire is ruled out of Constantinople, which is in modern day Turkey. And Constantinople was built over a previous city called Byzantium. So that's why they call it the Byzantine Empire. But just know this whenever we say Byzantine Empire, we are talking about the surviving eastern half of the Roman Empire. So it's not like a new empire came into existence. It's just the the nomenclature or the name changes at this point. Now, as I said, the western half was soon to fall and it would be replaced by a new Europe with a Gothic flavor. We already talked about that over the last two lessons. Um, Another thing I need to point out is in the 7th century, which would be the 600s, the Persian Empire, the Parthians, conquered much of the Byzantine Empire. They almost got rid of the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire. But from 622 to 628, the Byzantines made a comeback. And their comeback was so spectacular that they went straight into the heart of the Persian Empire and destroyed it once and for all. So those Parthians that always gave the Romans such a hard time get utterly and finally destroyed by the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Um, And and that happens uh, at the Battle of Nineveh. Um, So anyhow... You would think that's a good thing. The Persians are defeated. The, Roman, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire is safe. But it's not. Because what happens is when you destroy the most powerful Middle Eastern Empire, right around the time that the Arabs are all rallying around this new religion called Islam... You've now just created a power vacuum because the Persians are destroyed. And so the Muslims are going to sweep up into Iran and Iraq and take over the Middle East with almost no problem. And because they're able to fill that vacuum, now you have a new threat that's going to be going after the Byzantines for the next few centuries. And eventually they're going to eradicate them. The Byzantine Empire does not exist anymore because Islam destroyed it. So the Byzantine victory over Persia actually sealed their later uh, fate by them being destroyed by, by the Islamic Empire. So just, you know, one of those interesting things of history to, to know about. Now, kind of getting to the, the uh, theological controversies, right? So I'm, I've, I've given you just a, a quick overview of the political history going on there. Um, theologically speaking, um, problems are only going to get worse after the Council of Chalcedon. So remember, the Council of Chalcedon settles... The big Christological debate that is Jesus man? Is he God? Is he both? Does he have one nature, two natures? Is he two persons, one person? And again, the creed's like, Jesus is one person, second person of the Trinity, the logos. But in him subsists the two natures, divine and human, right? Without confusion, without uh, them being mixed or, or anything like that. So you'd be like, great, problem solved. no. 230 more years of problems um, and debate. So the Eastern Empire, as it's being attacked by Muslims and, well, Persians first and then Muslims after, um, also you have them tearing themselves apart over these theological controversies. Now, in this time and in the midst of these controversies, there were four parties, four religious parties in the aftermath of the Council of Chalcedon. You had the Monophysites, you had the Cerulean Chalcedonians, you had the Diophysites, and you had the Originists. And if you don't know who these groups are, shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, why would you know? So I'm going I'm to explain them now. Now, the Monophysites you might have heard of, because, you know, it's kind of a... If, if you're vaguely familiar with church history, then, uh, then you might have heard of the Monophysites. If not, uh, no worries. I'll explain them real quick. The Monophysites would not accept the Chalcedonian Creed. They would not accept a statement that said Jesus had two natures, divine and human. Because, and they got a lot of reasons for this. And just to let you know, they weren't the majority group, but they were the largest group in Egypt and Syria. And this is going to impact the way church history plays out. And I'll explain why a little later. But they insisted on the language of Cyril or Cyril of Alexandria. I'll call him Cyril. Um, because that's what all the professors say, and they all got their PhDs, all right? So, so Cyril of Alexandria, if you remember, he was the big one saying that we must proclaim that Jesus is God, that he's divine. Well, what about his humanity? Cyril would believe most likely what the Chalcedonian Creed came up with, but he died before that creed happened. The problem is the language he used was different than what was used by the creed. So what he taught was there was one nature, not two. And whereas, you know, the creed is going to say there's two natures, divine and human. But here's the problem. And and by the way, this is why we call them monophysites. Mono means one. Physite comes from phusis in Greek, which means nature. And so that that Christ, it's the position that Christ only has one nature. They argued that you cannot make the distinction between person and nature the way the Chalcedonian creed does so. Now, I, I do want to say there are moderate and extreme versions of Okay, The moderate version, really, these guys aren't that different from, from the rest of us, um, is my point. So, they, what they mean by physis or nature, is what the Chalcedonians meant by person. Okay, what they meant by nature is what the Chalcedonians meant uh, by, by person. Right, So they weren't far off from each other. They're just disagreeing over terms, over nomenclature. If you really got down to it and say, what do you mean by this word? Oh, by that word, you mean what we mean by this other word. Well, we don't want you using that word. Well, we're going to use that word. And that's ultimately where the disagreement was between the moderate monophysites and the Chalcedonians. And honestly, this was a a big um, revelation for me. Years ago, when I was arguing with a, a Coptic Orthodox, you know, an Egyptian Orthodox, you know, priest, and I was saying, well, you guys are monophysites, you're heretics. You don't even believe in the humanity of Christ. You only believe that he has one, one nature, the divine nature. And then the way the guy was explaining to me, I'm like, well, no, that's what we believe, you know, in the hypostatic union, but he didn't want to use that terminology, hypostatic union. But as we were arguing, it seemed very clear we, be- we believed the same thing. About Jesus. And so it was just weird to me. And at that point, I understood that not all monophysites are what I thought they were. The moderate forms of it really aren't that much different than those who accept the Chalcedonian Creed. Now, the um, extreme forms of monophysites, though, uh, they're, they're going to be a little different. And so um, I have them mentioned down here. They were similar to the heretic Eutychus that was condemned at the Council of uh, Chalcedon. Eutychus claimed that the divine and human natures of Christ blended into a new thing Uh, it was a mixture it was this third thing this third way um, now so you know that's just bad because then he becomes less than divine yet more than human and that's not how the Bible presents Christ he is God but he's God in the flesh. Um, And and going back to the moderate monophysites, I just want to say that they produced some phenomenal theologians whose writings survive to this day. Some of them were even the patriarchs, meaning that was like the equivalent of the pope um, in the cities of Alexandria and Antioch. And had these guys not been monophysites, church history probably would have recorded them as church fathers. That's how brilliant their theology was. But since they were part of this party, they're seen as they're classified as heretics, even though for the most part, they weren't as heretical as we would think. It was just disagreement over the language. Um, they, they were talking past each other. Now, when you get to the extreme monophysites, the ones that say, no, you know, has two natures blended into this, this mixture, both the moderate monophysites and the Chalcedonians condemned them. And you thought, you would think that would bring them together, but the moderate monophysites thought the Chalcedonians were Nestorians. And again, this is all stuff we talked about in previous lessons. And, and I'll bring up uh, Nestorianism um, uh, again in a, in a minute. Um, so pretty much the extreme and moderate forms of monophysites are still going to reject the Chalcedonian Creed um, because they see it as Nestorianism. Now, Nestorianism really is diophysitism. Now, if Phusis is nature... And mono is one nature. What do you think dio is? Two. Two natures, right? And so this was a smaller party, the diophysite party. But at the beginning, after 451, when the Chalcedonian Creed was first spreading, these guys actually exerted a large influence because people thought they were Chalcedonians. They thought that they agreed Jesus is one person with two natures because it seemed like they were arguing for that. So some of these guys even were patriarchs of um, some of the major cities. Um, And and the reason why they were granted popularity at first is because they were arguing fiercely for the two natures of Christ, divine and human. And, And that's important. But the problem is when you look closer at what they actually believed, it was Nestorianism. And you might say, well, okay, remind us what Nestorianism is again. And by the way, Nestorius probably didn't believe this. But he was accused of believing this, like excommunicated because of it, even though it wasn't true. And then later followers under his name actually believe what he was accused of. So kind of weird. These guys were pretty uh, cutthroat in their theological disputes. But Nestorianism is the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but they weren't going to say he was one person. It's almost like you have to have two persons. You have the divine Jesus and you have the human Jesus, and they're like on train tracks parallel to each other, but there's not a union between them. And so as these guys are walking around arguing fiercely for the two natures, the Chalcedonians are like, yes, these guys are with us. But then you start listening a little bit, like, wait a minute, these guys aren't with us because they're not seeing the two natures united or subsisting in the one person of Jesus. They seem to argue that it was only the human Christ that suffered on the cross. Uh, on the cross, And so because of that, um, you know, they, they were not orthodox. And the monophysites, of course, opposed them. They, they say, see, this is what happens when you believe Jesus has two natures. That they, this is inevitably what happens. And, and the fact that you Chalcedonians couldn't even tell that that's what these guys were saying, shows that deep down you're all Nestorians. Um, you know, their point was that the Monophysites said, listen, a person acts and feels through his nature. And so if Christ has a divine nature, then even that divine nature in some sense suffered on the cross. Now, I think that's not nuanced. I think that's problematic how they said that. But it's better than what Nestorianism or Diophysites would say. Um, so the Monophysites believed that the Diophysites represented the Chalcedonian Creed. That's why we reject it, because Diophysites could feel at home with it. But that's not true. The Diophysites were not in line with it as well. Now, the third position is the right position. This is just those who supported the Chalcedonian Creed. It's, it's orthodoxy. This is the Orthodox Church. This is what everybody believes today. You know, except for the Coptics and the, you know, and those folks. But pretty much Catholics, Greek Orthodox, and Protestants all agree on this. Now, to put it in the time frame, then we'll call them Cyrillian Chalcedonians. Uh, you could kind of figure out what they believe by these two words. Chalcedonians means they accept the Chalcedonian Creed. And they're claiming that they are the true heirs of Cyril. For some reason, everybody cared what Cyril of Alexander had, Alexandria had to say. They all all pretty much said, we want Cyril on our side. The Monophysites said, we're the ones who follow Cyril. But the Chalcedonians are like, no, had he lived long enough, he would have agreed with the Chalcedonian Creed. And so that's this third party. It's the biggest party. Pretty much they held sway over the whole Byzantine Empire, except for Egypt and Syria. Those were the two places insisting on Monophysitism. But Greece, Asia Minor, most of Africa, except for Egypt, it it was going to be... You know, Chalcedonian orthodoxy. So, what they would say is look, we accept the Christology of Cyril, but nature and person are two different things. Hypostasis is person in the Greek, phusis is nature. So, Jesus is one hypostasis, but two phusises. And and, and the reason why this was problematic is when Cyril was alive, hypostasis and phusis were used as synonyms. But for this creed, they agreed. They said, what we're going to do is we're all going to say hypostasis only means person and phusis only means uh, nature. And, And what they said is had Cyril lived long enough to be at that meeting where we agreed on these terms, he would have agreed with this. Because when you read the details of what he says about Christ's divinity and his humanity, he might not have used the words we used, but his explanations match what's in the creed. And so, pretty much that's that's their big argument there. Now, their opposition to the monophysites was going to be on two grounds. First, the monophysites claimed that the two natures blended into a single divine human nature. Not that they mixed... But again, they didn't believe a person, one person could have two natures. So what they would say is the one person and the one nature are the same. And since he has both humanity and divinity, we'll just call it divine humanity. Um, And and so it's, again, it's weird. It's confusing. That's why it's wrong. If you take it literally, it sounds like they're saying that Jesus' humanity itself is divine. Like it's a different form of humanity. But again... You talk to the Coptic Orthodox, that's not actually what they believe, even though that's what the words they say would make you think they believe. And so that ends up being, being the problem with this. But, you know, the Chalcedonian, uh, the Cerulean Chalcedonians are like, no, you, you can't do this. The two natures have to remain separate. Don't say he's, he's, uh, he's got one divine human nature. Say he's one Christ with two natures, divine and human. That is what's more accurate. Now, the second thing that they fault the monophysites for is um, the monophysites said we can never accept the creed because it betrays the language of Cyril. And this is where they're saying, but it doesn't betray the concepts of what he said. And furthermore, we recite his creed. Um, There was a, 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 a creed that he put out there, a formula in worship where Cyril would say one of the Holy Trinity suffered on the cross. Right, And that would be a statement that only makes sense in light of the hypostatic union. And so they're like, we're not Nestorians. We, we quote several on this. And so you monophysites just don't understand and you're uh, misrepresenting us. Okay, then the fourth party, the Origenist party. And again, all this is the aftermath of the Council of Chalcedon. Supposed to bring the church together in the east, divides it four ways. The Origenist party was small. And they held all the wrong things that Origen believed. And I'm glad they did. Because Origen's one of those guys that although he made significant contributions to some Christology, especially the divinity of Christ... He believed so many things that were wrong that I'm glad some people held on to this because then finally, 300 years later, the church could excommunicate him. Yeah, he'd been dead for a long time, but they'll finally be able to declare his heresy heresy. You know, yes, we depend on him for the term eternal generation, and he had some good other things as well, but the things he was wrong on are serious enough where, Um, I'm glad they were still around so that a church council could finally say this stuff's off limits. So what the Origenists said is they said that Jesus was the man was an eternal human, an eternal human soul that in the incarnation was united to the Logos, which is the second person, of the Trinity. So Jesus, the human is different than the Logos, the son of God. Right. But in the incarnation, these two things merge together. So he ends up being two people with two natures. This is worse than all the positions. Okay. And uh, yeah. And and so the Logos to him or to this position wasn't the the flesh. It became the eternal soul of the human Jesus. And so, um, and there's other problems. They believed in universal salvation, that everybody's going to be saved. Um, And I'll have them listed later when we talk about them finally being excommunicated. Um, So point is not a very big party, but they were still around. The Diophysites, not very big, but they're still around. Most of the fights are going to be between the Chalcedonians and the Monophysites. And again, the theological battling between these groups will tear the Eastern Church apart with effects that last even today today. So now that I've talked about the four parties, okay, we could get into the basic historical narrative. So you needed to know who the players were. So that, you know, you understand who's hating each other. And now we're going to get into the hate and what happened. So, Chalcedonian Creed. We backtrack to 451. It's agreed upon. It's an ecumenical council. goes out to the the whole church. (coughs) Emperor Marcion, who was the Byzantine emperor, appointed a Chalcedonian bishop as the patriarch of Alexandria. Alexandria is in Egypt. Egypt is filled with monophysites. In fact, Cyril was from Alexandria. And remember, the monophysites think they're following the beloved teacher Cyril. And so when the emperor in Constantinople puts as patriarch or little pope of Alexandria, when he he puts a Chalcedonian there, all the monophysites are going to riot. Emperor, you are not going to put a guy who's pushing two natures of Christ, you know, in, in our city. So they rioted. And so this is right after the Council of Chalcedon. Alexandria, one of the biggest cities in, in North Africa, riots. And so the, the Byzantine emperor sends in soldiers and has to put it down by force. Blood is spilt in the, in the, the streets and orders restored. And this Chalcedonian bishop is now safely the bishop of Alexandria. But then Emperor Marcion dies And the monophysites riot again, and they murder this patriarch at the communion table. They walk right into the church during the church service as he's serving communion, and they beat him to death. They then replace him with a monophysite bishop called Timothy the Cat. Now, of course, why was he called Timothy the Cat? It was his opponents that called him that, because he was really short. And some people don't know if you could translate cat, do you translate it as cat or weasel? He might have been called Timothy the Weasel. One, because he was short. Two, because his opponents didn't like him. He was a monophysite. You know, he gets his position because the, the previous guy was murdered. Well, anyhow, the new Byzantine emperor, when he finds out, his name's Leo I, he exiles Timothy the cat. He says, get out of the empire. He exiles him in 459. So this is just like eight years after the, the Chalcedonian Creed. And so once he, once uh, Emperor Leo kicks Timothy the cat out, More riots ensue. Alexandria breaks into riot again. He sends troops. He sends the army again and has to kill some of these guys. And then they get them back in line. But this gives you a taste of what's coming and what's going to keep happening. These monophysites absolutely are convinced the Chalcedonian Creed is Nestorianism. So they're willing to rise up against the government. The government comes in and then with soldiers puts them down. This will not be the first time this happens. Now, we move from Egypt to Syria, which is like where Antioch is. Okay, that's another of the major cities, uh, the four major cities in the east. Similar things will happen. They were fiercely monophysite, and so they kick out the Chalcedonian patriarch of Antioch, and they replace him with the monophysite instead in 469. Emperor Leo, the same guy, banishes that monophysite patriarch in 471. And so then the, there will be riots there, and, and they got to be dealt with as well. Now, there's one thing you got to understand with this. It's not just theology that's driving this. It's nationalism. And and if you guys understand what nationalism is, nationalism is when you have an intense pride in your ethnicity, your language and your culture. Okay? now think about it. The Roman Empire united the whole swaths of the world under a single culture. And in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, that culture was a Greek culture. But Egyptians and Syrians aren't actually Greek. They're Semitic peoples with Semitic languages. Well, at least the Egyptians at that time, the ancient ones weren't Semitic, but at this point they were. And so it's like, why are we speaking Greek? Why are we singing in Greek? Why are we taking orders from this Greek city in Constantinople? You are know, pretty much this, this Greek government ruling from this Greek built city in, in Constantinople Egyptians speak Coptic. Syrians speak Syriac. And so they, this was becoming more and more of an issue. Like the monophysite versus Chalcedonian issue was as much about them wanting to be independent of Greek culture. Like we want to do our own thing. We want to have our own distinct church. And this is the issue that we're going to use to get there um, because this issue is, is a big deal. So that's what's going on there now. To their credit, a lot of these Eastern emperors wanted to compromise. They wanted to fix it. Let's find a way where we could all get along. And so the next emperor, Emperor Zeno, offered a compromise where he said, okay, here's what we'll do. The only test for orthodoxy in the Eastern Empire was the first three ecumenical councils, the Council of Nicaea, and the Council of Constantinople, those settled the Trinity. And then the Council of Ephesus, where Pelagius was kicked out, right? And, and, and also, so those three will be the three. As long as you agree with those, you could be a Monophysite or a Chalcedonian. will be fine. And then we will also condemn Nestorius... Okay, meaning we don't believe Jesus is two persons and we'll condemn Eutychus. We don't believe that Jesus blended divinity and humanity into a third thing. If we could all agree on that, we should be good. And the monophysites are like, deal. We can agree with that. that that'll that work. And so for a while, there was peace in the East, but this is where the Western church is gonna come and mess things up. Now understand that the Western church at this point is not like Charlemagne's church. Okay, the 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 Germanic uh, uh, Goths have pretty much destroyed the old Roman Empire, but it, you don 't have this new gothic uh version of of Western Europe yet with the Pope kind of over the Pope was still connected to the East right and he still looked to the Byzantines as as his protectors at this point, so you know i'm trying i 'm saying this so that you don 't assume the stuff that I said in the last lesson was still at Play here, no, uh, this is kind of what was going on two lessons ago, um, so what I talked about two lessons ago with the, with the western europe we 're in the same time frame now um, in on the eastern half, but we 're going to move through the timeline pretty fast today, um, but anyway, get, get, getting back to what I was saying about that. Um, the Western church is going to be furious. They're like, how could you do that? The Chalcedonian Creed was accepted because Pope Leo I wrote the tome. And the tome was critical. Everybody read it and said, this is brilliant. This is true Christology. And it ended up in the Chalcedonian Creed. And that's why everybody accepted it. But now the Eastern church is acting like the Chalcedonian Creed it doesn't have to be listened to, but only the creeds before it does. And so you're slapping Pope Leo and his contribution to the face. You're slapping the Western church to the face. And honestly, you're opening the door for apostasy. Monophysitism is an apostasy. And so pretty much Pope Felix II, you know, from 483 to 492. So this is right after the Western empire fell. Again, they still saw themselves connected to the East. He excommunicates his emperor. And Perzino, and he excommunicates the patriarch of Constantinople, which is his equivalent. I want you to understand this. The top dog in the Eastern Church was the bishop of Constantinople. The top dog in the Western Church was the pope. Now, they would have been equals in the world at that time. And yet the pope, Pope Felix, thought he had the ability to excommunicate his equal. And so he did. He's like, I've excommunicated you, and I excommunicate your emperor. And the two churches were split for 35 years. Now, they'll come back together after 35 years. That's why we don't count this as the split between East and West. But it was a taste of what was to come. Now, the next emperor, Anastasius, 491 to 518 are his reign dates, He responds to the Pope by moving even closer to the monophysites. Oh, if the Western bishop's going to tell us that we're wrong on this, then maybe we're on to something. We'll become even more monophysite. And so what Anastasius did is he condemned Leo's tome and the Chalcedonian Creed. Even though they were ecumenical, well, the creed was ecumenical. He says, nope, it's heresy. And uh, and so he then even changed the revered words of worship um, where it ended up being a monophysite type of of worship phrase. Um, And when that happened, it led to riots in Constantinople because the people of Constantinople, they believed in the Chalcedonian Creed. So just because this emperor's mad at the pope, he's now siding with these Egyptians. And the Syrians know the people of Constantinople weren't happy with that. So they rioted and the emperor almost got killed in this riot. The emperor himself, his own people, almost killed him. So he then reverted the words back to the Chalcedonian version, which ended up saving his life. But that shows you kind of where this is, this is all headed. And so what happens next is when the, that emperor, Anastasius, dies in 518, he's replaced by a man named Justin I. And he reigned from 518 to 527. Now, he was not related by blood, but I, I don't know the circumstances of how he came to power. He was a Latin-speaking, Western-thinking soldier from Thrace. And so he had affinities with the West, affinities with the Pope. And so it's under him that there's going to be a, a reconciliation. Now, the fact was, the Monophysites might have liked the previous emperors, but the lo- army liked this guy. They were loyal to him. And he, his advisor was his brilliant nephew named Justinian. And that name might sound familiar. He's going to become the greatest ruler the East ever produced. Uh, But right now, he's just a nephew and just an advisor. Now, this new emperor, Justin, was committed to both the Chalcedonian Creed and cooperating with the papacy in the West. Uh, So under him, the Chalcedonian Creed now becomes necessary. If you're going to be on good terms with the church and not be considered apostate, you have to agree with the Chalcedonian Creed. So what happened? The monophysites in Egypt and the monophysites in Syria, they rebel again. And they start rioting again. What does this guy do? He sends troops to both cities and he gets them back in line at the point of the sword. Eventually he dies and he is succeeded by his nephew, Justinian the Great. And look how long he ruled, 527 to 565. He is the most celebrated of all the Byzantine emperors and probably in the top 10 most influential rulers in all of history. I mean, uh, um, you know, his his significance and his um, achievements are still talked about today. Now, he was uh, devout to orthodoxy and he was a brilliant leader of civil government. So he knew how to lead an army. He knew how to run a government. He knew how to do theology. Dude was the, the total package, but he was hot tempered and he was jealous and he almost got himself killed early in his reign. Like his people rioted and almost killed him. It was only him listening to his wife that uh, actually got him to survive that insurrection. But after that, he sets up a very stable society. Um, so he's and by the way, he's going to reign directly over as much as he could. And he was so busy with governing that his nickname wasn't Justinian the Great, but Justinian the Sleepless. Meaning a lot of rulers have a lot of bureaucrats that rule for them in certain parts. And then they just do the big picture. He did the big picture. He did the little picture. This man was made to govern. Now, uh, Justinian had some outstanding achievements. First, he reconquers the West from the Goths. All those Goths that destroyed the old Roman Empire, he defeats them and reconquers most of Western Europe. And so under him, you have a united Roman Empire again under an emperor from Constantinople. It's the last time that'll happen. This will be the last time that you have a political unity of the Roman Empire. And keep in mind, this is a couple hundred years before Charlemagne, right? So we went back in time. Now, you know, to talk about the equivalent history on the east side. But he he's the one who defeated the Vandals. Remember, the Vandals were committing ethnic cleansing, genocide in North Africa, you know, and trying to force everyone to be Aryans, um, meaning like the heretic Arius, that kind of uh, belief. And so he destroyed them in North Africa. He uh, defeated the Ostrogoths in Italy and expelled the Visigoths from Spain. Um, the Roman Empire, as I said, he reunited it. So that's the first thing. Under Justinian, you got the Roman Empire revived. But after he dies, the West is lost to them again. All these Gothics retake it, uh, retake their parts back. Justinian also reformed the entire legal system that Byzantium inherited from old Rome, meaning like Rome way back to the 400 BCs, all the way to now. He takes because Rome had the most sophisticated set of laws. Our Constitution, our Constitution took things from the Roman Republic. The idea, how many of you have ever heard of separation of powers and three branches and checks and balances? The Romans invented that. It's called a republic. It's a Latin word, res publica. We took the idea from them. Why do our buildings, our government buildings, all look like Roman buildings to pay homage to the ideas we took from them? So the Rome, even after they became, a, a, um, you know, having emperors and became a monarchy, they still had sophisticated laws. Justinian takes all these laws for well over a thousand years and he's going to synthesize them. He's going to remove the contradictions, the ones that are pagan he's going to get rid of. He's going to give a new Christian foundation to all the laws. But he's going to create a legal code and legal system that not only is in his part of the empire but for the next 1000 years all western kingdoms western europe based their laws off justinian's so think of future kings of england justinian's law code future kings of france justinian's law code uh, this is going to be well in effect till after the reformation so that's pretty significant that he had that effect on legal history and you know and again he in his law code slaves are now declared to be made in the image of God, and you can't treat them like mere property. They have rights. Where do you think we get some of these ideas from? We didn't just make them up. We, we inherited them, and Justinian is one of the, um, one of the, the, the big thinkers in that and uh, one of the big movers and shakers. Now, the body of civil law, uh, as I said, set the legal system for the next thousand years, and uh, it influenced uh, church canon law in the Western church. Now, another very important uh, Achievement was the rebuilding of Hagia Sophia. That is the most famous church in the Eastern Empire. And to be honest, it's the most famous church in the world. It's the the Church of Constantinople. It was called uh, Hagia Sophia, just means holy wisdom. It was burned down and destroyed in the riot that almost killed Justinian. So he has it rebuilt and it is considered the most splendid church building ever constructed if you go on the inside of it and i you know i got pictures here but the ceilings look like they defy gravity you can't even tell what's holding them up It's perfect architecture is what's holding them up. But it looks like these domes are just suspended. And then, like, everything on the inside is plated with silver and gold. So when the sun hits it at a certain time of day, from the distance, it just looks like this big light glowing. And then you go inside, light is just shining everywhere. There has never been a church as magnificent or glorious as this one that's ever been built. I mean, again, you take the best things that the Catholics have built, churches... Pales in comparison to this. Protestants, come on, look at our building here. I mean, we, we got nothing like this, nothing like this. Now, the thing is, when, when the Turks um, conquered Constantinople and renamed it Istanbul, you know, the, the, the church isn't going to thrive anymore, but they didn't turn it into a mosque, fortunately. I mean, for a while they did. But it, it was a church, and now it's a museum. It's so the most glorious Christian building ever constructed by Justinian. If you go there now, 1,500 years later, it looks just like it would have looked back then. So that's one place I definitely want to go. It's on my bucket list just to go there. It might be a museum now, but I'm going to go in there, you know, maybe read a Bible verse out loud at some point in my life. But pretty pretty stinking magnificent uh, building there. Now, Justinian's religious policies, uh, he finished the Christianizing of the empire. In in other words, he's the one who finally gets rid of Arianism, at least in the East. Charlemagne will get rid of it in the West. It's going to linger in the West longer. But in the East, Arianism, Manichaeism, and all other heresies and paganism were now outright declared illegal. He closed down the last great pagan center of learning, which was Plato's Academy. So Plato founded that venerable academy in Athens, cobwebs. Because of Justinian. Close it down. No more Platonic scholars are going to be pushing their Platonism. Not when Justinian's in charge. He passed a law requiring all non-Christians to accept baptism. With the exception of Jews. Now in the West, when Charlemagne tried to do that. And people said, hey, you can't do that. He backed down. In the East... Nobody's going to get Justinian to back down. Um, Again, he gave an exception to the Jews, but he was still a jerk to the Jews. He just wasn't going to make them accept Christian baptism. But he did say, you're not allowed to speak Hebrew. And even in your own worship synagogue, your own worship services in your synagogues, you can no longer read the Hebrew Bible. You have to read the Greek Septuagint because that's what we Christians read. Um, And then he said, and by the way, Jews are not allowed to hold any government positions. So... uh, That's happened to us a lot in history, just to let you know. And Justinian is is one more that that did that. Now, when it came to uh, the monophysites, Justinian doesn't treat them as heretics. And again, because most of the moderate ones weren't, he's going to accept a statement that will satisfy the moderate monophysites and most Chalcedonians. Again, spirit of compromise. Let's see if we could work this out. But when he did that... Pope, uh, pope Agapetus, the first, he did not accept this, so he's going to make problems for for Justinian. But I give this pope credit; he visits Constantinople and he walks into the emperor's palace as if he's an Old Testament prophet, like as if he's Nathan going up to David and like, you are the man. And he does that, and Justinian is like, "You're right, you're right. I've I've sinned." And so Justinian walks back his decision and says, you know, and says, "All right, you know what? I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do what you you called me to do." So just don't Justinian deposed the Monophysite patriarch of Constantinople. I mean, the patriarch of Constantinople is a Monophysite. Justinian boots him out because this pope comes in. How dare you have somebody who doesn't accept the creed? And you're putting them in the highest position in the East? No. And so Justinian agrees. He gives in. Um, So that's interesting. Another thing with uh, Justinian's religious policy is he destroys the originists, finally. And he condemned their teachings. They taught that all human souls are eternal, meaning that we have always existed. We've existed as long as Christ has existed. It was just a certain point in time where we got our bodies. That's heretical. Uh, he taught universal salvation through Apostasis. Apocastasis is the idea that all that exists emanated out from God, and eventually everything's going to be sucked back into God. Therefore, everything's going to be redeemed, including Satan. That is heretical. It's an error for sure. Um, you know, the they, Origen and his followers taught that uh, we're not going to have a physical resurrection, but it'll be a spiritual resurrection. And then again, as I said, they thought the incarnation was the uniting of the eternal human Jesus with the second person of the Trinity rather than uh, the hypostatic union. So just all sorts of problems. Justinian went after them. And there's going to be a council, another ecumenical council that is going to finally... Um, condemn Origen and his followers, and he's going to be excommunicated. Um, Justinian also knew that if he's going to have peace with the Monophysites, he has to condemn the Diophysites, which were the Nestorians. And so he outlawed their formative writings. But then this made the popes in the West mad, because even though they weren't Diophysites, they, uh, they felt loyal to some of the early Diophysites, since some of the early Diophysites were loyal to Pope Leo. Um, So because of that, they're going to oppose Justin. So you're going to have battles between Justinian and the next pope, and they're very strange. Justinian's like, all right, this pope, I'm not going to let him knock us off course on this. So he actually has the pope kidnapped. Justinian sends some people to Rome, go get me that pope, bring them back here. And then he gets brought back to Justinian, Justinian bullies him, and then the pope's like, all right, I support your position. Well, the West was so disgusted with their pope for doing this that they excommunicated their own pope. And so the pope then recants so that he could regain his position. And once he recants, he now starts opposing Justinian. Now, of course, he's away from Justinian now, so he gets brave again. And so what Justinian's going to do, is he's going to be like, all right, we're just going to settle this with another ecumenical council. So he summons the second council of Constantinople in 553. Most of the attendees were Eastern. um, And the Christology of the Chalcedonian Creed was strengthened um, in this one. So it didn't do anything new, but it clarified something that wasn't said in the first creed. And it's this, that the single person... Of the incarnate Lord was none other than the Logos, or the second person of the Trinity. Now, hopefully, you could tell that is against Origin. This is where they're, you know, they're condemning Origin and uh, and his followers. That it is the second person of the Trinity, the divine person, second person of the Trinity that has the divine nature, but then added the human nature to him, right? Um, and so this makes it so when you add this to the Chalcedonian Creed, now you have a complete Christology. Um, It was also declared at this council to end all arguments. You monophysites claim you follow Cyril. Well, we're telling you right now, we're all agreeing that Cyril meant when he said phusus, he meant person, hypostasis. Okay, we don't mean that so we don't disagree with him so you need to get in line. What we mean when we say phusus is divine and human nature and it subsists in the one person. As I said, Origen and his writings were declared to be heretical at this council. He was posthumously excommunicated. Um, And again, it was his troubling doctrines that were the the cause of of that decision. Um, And again, you know, pre-existence of human souls, spiritual resurrection, universal salvation, all that stuff. Uh, No bueno. Um, Now, one other thing about the Second Council of Constantinople that's worth, uh, worth saying is that this council also affirm that Mary is a perpetual virgin. So as Protestants, we don't believe that. Um, but they claim that, you know, the womb of Mary had to be special. Okay, it had to be a temple that was only fit for God himself. And it would be defiled if any other human ever grew in that womb. And so no other child could be conceived in her. She could not have sex. Even, so Joseph had to marry her and, and never touch her, you know, for, for the whole duration of their, their marriage. Now, we know there's biblical data that goes against this. Jesus had brothers. And so, uh, so what the Eastern Church says is Jesus' brothers were stepbrothers. Joseph must have had a previous marriage that the Bible doesn't tell us about. That's why he has brothers. Um, the West says, no, we don't have to go that far. The word brother can sometimes mean cousin. So they were just Jesus' cousins. But of course, they're doing these gymnastics. And, and, and we know Matthew 1 makes it clear. It says Joseph did not have sexual relations with her until after Jesus was born. Until after means it did happen after. But again, these guys let their, their theology of what the virgin must be, like what her womb must be. It was really Platonism affecting all this that they said she could not have had relations with her husband and born children to him after, um, after Jesus was born. And, you know, a lot of times we knock the Eastern Orthodox, we knock the Catholics, and I think we should knock this idea for sure. But disturbingly, Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin all agreed with this and believed in Mary's perpetual virginity. I don't know how. I mean, these are the pillars of Protestantism. Now, fortunately, most Protestants at a later date said, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. And so we reject the perpetual virginity of Mary. But if you want to know when that decision was official and even how long it held sway um, in Protestantism, it... Yeah, it's, it's kind of sad. Um, now, the Second Council of Constantinople was considered ecumenical, and it was a total victory for the Chalcedonian Creed. The church was now committed to the Chalcedonian Creed, interpreted in light of Cyril's theology, which should calm the monophysites down. That's, that's the idea about this. Uh, and then the Origenists and the diophysites, they're off the table. So this should have fixed things, but it didn't. And why didn't it? Because of nationalism. And that's why I got more nationalistic pictures up there. Um, So so pretty much, here's what happens. The West, even though at first they did not support the council, later they will. And so it is ecumenical. Eventually they'll come to accept it. They'll be even more gung-ho about it than some people in the East. Uh, But the main reason is by this point of time, the monophysites had already lost interest in union with Byzantium. By this point, they're like, you know what, Byzantium, it's Greek. That's not us. They're imperial. And so the Syriac church... Already by this point was doing their services in Syriac, making Syriac translations, singing their songs in Syriac, ordaining their own bishops. Uh, They're setting up their own traditions. The exact same thing was already happening in Egypt. They checked out a while ago, so they were already uh, doing things in Coptic. In their mind, they weren't part of the uh, Byzantine church. They were the Egyptian Coptic Orthodox Church. And that is still the prevailing form of Christianity in Egypt today. It's the Coptic church. And then missionaries from both the Syriac and Egyptian monophysite churches spread this form of Christianity to Ethiopia. And so now you have the Ethiopian uh, Orthodox church, which was monophysite. All three of these to this day are still moderate monophysite. And so and then, of course, the Armenian Orthodox church is worth mentioning. They were also monophysite, but they're different in the sense that they were always independent. The Nation of Armenia was the first country to accept Christianity. Um, This was when the Romans were still killing Christians. The king of Armenia converted and made Christianity the official religion of Armenia. And then it was a long time after that Rome became um, Christian. So these guys had always been marching to their own beat. Um, So the Armenian Orthodox Church is actually probably even older you could say than the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, But they also rejected the Chalcedonian Creed formally in the year 500 and they leaned in the monophysite direction so by the end of justinian's reign in 565 these nationalist church movements of egypt syria armenia and ethiopia they had no real connection to either the eastern or western churches and they developed separately to this day they have their own separate writings own separate history they got different uh groups of popes different uh lineages of apostolic succession Um, they're completely different churches although in practice they're not that far from Eastern Orthodox when you look at how they do things, but there's enough difference to where they've they've never seen themselves as uh, being part of that. Now, Eastern theology, in terms of their theology, they're going to develop differently than the West. And the most famous expression of Eastern theology is a source that we call Pseudo-Dionysius. Uh, you guys know what pseudo means, right? Fake, fake. So this work was purported to be written by Dionysus the uh, Areopagite. Or no, Areopagite. I can never say it. Areopagus. So the Areopagite. Dionysus the Areopagite. Um, When Paul preaches in Athens in Acts 17, Dionysus the Areopagite converts. This is claiming to be written by him. There's no stinking way it was written by him because it's a document that mixes Neoplatonism with Christianity and Neoplatonism was not did did not exist until the third century. You know, so it's clear this is just a guy that lived during the time of Justinian, who's pretending to be Dionysius, Dionysius and he writes this, and pretty much he's, his whole philosophy is Neoplatonic, and Greek Orthodox to this day still has these tendencies. But here's the one good thing that comes from it. One of the lasting contributions is it insists on speaking about God in apophatic terms. Now, apophatic is where you say what something is not rather than what something is. The idea is God is infinite, transcendent. He's beyond our understanding, so we can't definitively say what God is But we could say what God is by saying what he's not. okay? And the reason why that's important for us is later in the era of scholasticism in the Western church, which will be like 1100s, 1200s, um, the Western philosophers and the monks, the great thinkers of the Western Christian church are going to take this idea. And so where do we get words like infinite? Think of what infinite means as a word. It's a negation. We're finite. Okay, God's not like us. We're not going to say what He is. We'll say what He's not. He's not finite. He's infinite. Get what I'm saying? Uh, We're mutable. Well, God's, God's not mutable. So He's immutable. We have passions. We're passible, meaning we change is what passion, you know, and, and, and things like that. And we're affected by things outside of us, but God is not. So he's impassable. You get what I'm saying? So this idea of saying what God is by saying what he's not is going to be a huge part of our uh, religious vocabulary. And Pseudo Dionysius is one of the things that really got that out there. Now, the Cappadocian fathers, like Gregory of Nazianzus, also said the same, but it got really popular uh, because of Pseudo Dionysius. Now, I don't know how far I'm going to go tonight, but I'm going to still talk for a while more. The next big controversy, um, we definitely got to cover this, was um, it's going to be called the Monothelite Controversy. And I mentioned it briefly many lessons ago, but I actually want to go into more detail about it because this leads to the sixth ecumenical council. All right. So one of the big controversies came from one last attempt to unite the Monophysites and the Chalcedonians together. And this is in the seventh century. And and here's what they're going to do in the 600s. It's going to be suggested that Christ had one energeia or energy. Okay. So he's got one energy. Now an energy in the greek means action activity work or operation so for example you're a human being a human being you know what what makes a human being is the specific group of human activity or energy what is the human energy it's our thinking feeling willing speaking no other creature does this it's unique to us these are our operations and that's what makes us human beings I guess you could say human doings. But anyhow, our human doings is what makes us a human being. It's our Energia. And so what they were arguing, what they're trying to say is if Energia manifests a distinct nature, okay, if it's what points to a nature and Christ has two natures, then wouldn't Christ have two energies? The Chalcedonians would say no, because the divine and human nature indwell each other without mixing. And so you could still have one energy, in a sense, is is what they were saying at first. But since the monophysites didn't think you could separate person and nature, and that the Chalcedonians insisted that you can, the question is, what do we do with this energeia, this energy? And so pretty much what, what they were hoping is, well, look, we've been fighting about the words nature and person for a long time. Nobody's fighting over the word energy. So maybe if we bring this new word in, you know, the two sides could agree on one energy. Maybe we could have reconciliation if we say that Christ has one energy but two natures. Maybe this will get everybody together. And so it was argued that the energy or energeia belonged to the person rather than the nature. It belongs to the person, the second person, the Trinity. And it was argued that Jesus exercised this one perfect energy through the two natures. So you got the two natures, but through them, you have the one perfect energeia of the logos being exercised. That satisfied a lot of monophysites. It looked like it was going to work. It looked like it might bring unity. It even brought unity, uh, brought some union from the Armenian church and the Egyptian church with the Chalcedonians. But there were going to be some monophysites, in. it was called Palestine at this time. Uh, the Romans changed the name in the 2nd century from Israel to Palestine or Judea to Palestine. So in Palestine at this time, uh, the the monophysites, they rejected this because they believe that, look, as much as I know you guys like this, energy belongs to nature. What Jesus did as a human, what Jesus did as God were two different sets of energyas, So this doesn't work. And so they they, they push back. And what's going to cause this thing to explode is the emperor of Constantinople is going to be like, all right, pope. Pope in Rome, tell us what you think. And the Pope looks at this and says, what are you guys even talking about? Energeia, that's not a biblical word. So you're going to try to unite our Christology on a word that doesn't even appear in the Bible? No, 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 no. Don't talk about energy this way. The Bible doesn't. Instead, drop the energy talk and declare that Christ had one will. Because the Bible does show that God has a will. Okay, so say he has one will And the two natures then are, in a sense, they operate through that one will. Now, this detonated a theological bomb that leads to the next big controversy. This is like walking into Jabba the Hutt's palace with a thermal detonator in your hand. The Pope thought he was helping, but he wasn't, okay? He thought using the word will would would solve the problem. Um, And the emperor saying, okay, you know what? The Pope knows what he's talking about usually. I'm going to go with this. And so he forbid anybody talking about energy when it comes to Christ. And instead, everybody has to say he has a divine will. And this position was known as monothelitism, um, which is uh, uh, "theo" is I will, mono again is one. So it's the idea that Jesus has one will. Well, one of the most famous church fathers, well, He's after the Church Father era, but he's up there with them in terms of significance. Is Maximus the Confessor? It's a pretty cool name. Um the Orthodox Chalcedonians immediately oppose us. They're like, Emperor, what in the world are you talking about? And again, he's just going with what the Pope said, but the Pope was wrong. And the p- next Pope is going to also say, yeah, that Pope was wrong. You know, so the Chalcedonians immediately oppose it. And, and same with Pope Martin, the first. Again, he's the next Pope. Very uh, handsome man. Everybody in Rome liked him, all that kind of stuff. And theologically, he was good. Uh, but the more significant guy here is Maximus the Confessor. Um, 580 to 662. He articulated the correct position very carefully, and, and, and you know, just making it basic. Here's what he said. He's like, look, Jesus Christ, he has two wills, because a will is a property of nature, not person. Okay, remember, Christ is the one person, but he's got the two natures. Will you have to ask what is it a property of? Is will the property of the person or natures? He's like, every nature has a will. Um, so Jesus has a divine will that's inseparable from the Father and Holy Spirit's will, okay? So there's only one divine will. Father, Son, Holy Spirit have the same will, okay? Because the, the, the nature, right? One nature, one will, the divine nature. But when Jesus took on flesh, he added a human nature. And therefore, he assumed a human will that's distinct from the divine will. Otherwise, he would not be fully human. Maximus also made it clear that, look, the source of sin in us is our will, right? The, the source of sin in us is our will. If Christ is going to rescue our human will, he had to have a human will. Because remember what, remember what Gregory of Nazianzus said, what Christ does not assume he does not save. You had Apollinarius back then saying Christ didn't have a soul you know that that he was the body but the the logos was the soul. And and Gregory's like that doesn't work because our soul is sin- sinful as well. And if Christ doesn't have a human soul, how does he save our human souls by being a perfectly righteous human soul himself, right? He had to have a soul. Gra- uh, Maximus says it's the same thing with the will. Our wills corrupt, and if Christ the perfect man, the second Adam is going to save all aspects of us, which means he has to save our will as well, then he has to have a perfect will. Great argument. It's built on what earlier folks were saying in Christological debates. And so, um, again, he's right. And by the way, you read the Bible. We know Jesus is, is one person, but you could see the two wills. Because remember when he asks the Father, if it's your will, Lord, please let this cup pass from me. What was his human will wanting? His human will in that moment was wanting to not have to go to the cross because he knew what it meant to drink the Father's wrath. But then he says, not as I will, but as you will, right? And then he completely submits to the will of the Father. Now, Jesus' divine will was with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That, That was only one will. It's all the same. But the human Jesus for a moment said, is it possible that, you know, I don't have to go to the cross? But it wasn't possible. And so then the human will yielded to the divine will. But that passage shows there's two. It shows that Jesus has the divine will and the human will. And Maximus was right. What he doesn't assume, he doesn't save. Now, his arguments were so forceful, so brilliant, um, that, you know, historians look back on him, and, and he's on the level of Athanasius. He's on the level of the three Cappadocian fathers and Cyril, Um, And so because he was that forceful, that brilliant, that effective in convincing people of the biblical truth here, the emperor found him dangerous. Uh, But the emperor didn't touch him. But the emperor dies. And then his grandson becomes emperor, Constans, 641 to 688 were his dates. And he was a cruel type and he punishes Maximus in fact he sends troops and they capture both Maximus and Pope Martin Pope Martin was also writing the truth and so the emperor has him tortured and then releases him in such poor health that he releases him to a place of exile and he dies because of his poor health so he in effect the emperor killed this pope and then Maximus, same type of thing. He's an old man, but um, but what he wants to do to Maximus is he wants to make an example out of him. So He's a 74-year-old man, but he's like, I'm going to make a public spectacle out of this guy. So he threatens him, thinking he's going to get him to break in front of everybody. But all Maximus said is the emperor has no authority in theological matters. You're not God. You don't speak for God. You're just a man. You have no authority. What you say is useless in this context. The emperor got so mad, he exiled him to Thrace. But from Thrace, he continues to speak, continues to write against this monothelitism, this one will idea. And so then the emperor's like, all right, get him out of there. Let's put him on trial again. You know, out of fear, the rest of the empire verbally said they agreed with the emperor. They didn't really agree with them, but they didn't want to get killed. They were cowards. So like, okay, we're monothelites. But Maximus would not back down. And so the emperor would say, everybody agrees with me. Who are you, this one lone monk, to not agree with me? How, how dare you? And Maximus quoted Galatians nine. He said that if anybody preaches a gospel other than the one that has been preached, let him be anathema. He's like, I don't care if the whole empire says something different than, than the truth on this. They're all condemned and then I'm not. And so pretty much after he responded with that, At the order of the emperor, they ripped his tongue out and they chopped off his hand. That way he could not speak the truth and he could not write the truth. And then he banished him and he died from all this a few months later. So it seems like this, this evil emperor wins, but he doesn't because the third council of Constantinople um, is going to settle this. So this evil emperor, Constance, gets murdered you know in 668 and his son Constantine the 4th is a much wiser ruler and so what what he realizes look the emperor, empire is divided over this you know my my dad made Them by force think they're all united, but they weren't. And so let's figure this out. Now, the Muslims were invading during this time. After he defeated their invasion attempts, he then says, we need to restore the religious peace. So he summons the sixth ecumenical council, which is the third council of Constantinople. And that's in 680. Monothelitism was officially condemned. Uh, Maximus and uh, Martin's biblical position won the day. Like all the theologians looked at it and said, no, this is right. Christ, because he has the two natures, has two wills. He has a divine will, which is one with the Father and the Spirit, and then he has the human will. So it won the day, and this finally brought to an end centuries of division concerning the relationship between Christ's divine and human natures. Um, and, And here's one more thing you could say about this. All three great branches of the professing church, meaning the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant, they all agree on the Trinitarian and Christological doctrines of these first six ecumenical councils. All three traditions agree on these, and this finally stopped the fighting within, uh, about who Christ is. And so this is why, like you, you have uh, a resurgence in what's called classical theism today, recovering the orthodox Trinitarianism and Christology, because you cannot improve on what these guys put together over the course of these hundreds of years. Think about it. Some people have tried to come up with better explanations of the Trinity, like in the 1970s, 1980s. It's like, come on. These guys were arguing about this and thinking about nothing but this from the 200s all the way until almost the 700s. You know, 500 years of just arguing about this, defeating every possible heresy about Christ that you could think of, and you think we're going to improve upon their statements? Probably not. Probably not. And that, and that's why um, you know you have the what do they call it? The recovery, not recovery, but uh, retrieval of of a lot of this, uh, a lot of this stuff, and and it's it's important. Um, now there was one more thing I was going to talk about, but I don't think. I'm going to get to it today because it's already 8-11. <laughs> this thing keeps getting put off, the iconclastic controversy. Um, at some point, i got to talk about this. Um, maybe what I could do is skip some stuff and just give you the fast version. Now, i got a lot of slides here. It's important enough to talk about this. Um, well, tell you what, let me give a, a, a fast rundown of this. The next big controversy comes in the next two centuries and it has to deal with icons. You know what an icon is. they were making pictures of Christ. They were two-dimensional pictures of Christ, Mary and all that kind of stuff. And for the longest time, people in the Eastern church were venerite, venerating these icons. And so some people started to think this violates the second commandment. You can't be bowing and, and all this stuff and, and venerating icons and thinking these icons do miracles and putting these icons all over the church. So those who wanted to destroy the icons were called iconoglasts. Um, it means destroyer of icons. Those who love the icons were called iconophiles or iconophiles, you know, however you want to you, you want to pronounce it. They were the love of icons. Um, their opponents called them icon kissers. They called their opponents icon smashers. And so you have this big debate raging in the East. It wasn't really raging in the West at this time. But the question is, is it lawful? Is it biblical to have these images? Uh, you have this emperor, Leo the Isaurian who says it's not. And so he starts a war against icons. And by the way, The people on the ground, by and large, supported the icons. The monks, by and large, supported the icons. The clergy did. It was some politicians that were mainly against it. And it eventually gets to the point where they start uh, confiscating icons and destroying them. Sometimes it leads to riots. Sometimes it leads to them killing the monks. Eventually you get to a point where the monks um, are sneaking these icons out to the west You know, because in the West, they're they're, they're not being uh, prohibited. And so that's really what's, what's going on with this. Now, the theology of the icons was that it's kind of like if I make a if you make a picture, they felt like the picture was a window into heaven. So the icon of Christ isn't really Christ, but it's giving you an imaginary window into heaven to where when you look at it, you think about him. And so the iconoclast would be like, you're worshiping it. He'd be like, no, think of it. Think of it this way. You have, let's say you're a man and you're married, you have your wife, you love your wife, but you also are going to have a lot of sentimentality to a picture of her. So if you're away from your wife and you have that picture, you'll look at it and you'll be like, you know, and just, you know, cling to it or whatever, you know, you're not worshiping it. Instead, you're, you're, you're revering what it points to the real person, the wife. And so that's what they said about the icons. We're not worshiping these pictures. It might look like we're bowing down, but it's not idolatry. We're, we're, we're worshiping what it points to. Um, well, again, the iconoclast didn't always agree. Eventually it led to wars, violence, a lot of people getting killed, um, even the Western church kind of makes their statement on this. I was mentioning last time how Charlemagne um, more or less said that, look, the idea of icons are okay. Um, but at the same time, bowing to them and thinking they do miracles, not okay. Now, the East are like, Charlemagne, go pound sand. You know, we think it's okay to believe they do miracles. We think it's okay to, to venerate them. Um, and so, yeah, it's pretty much uh, what, what you have going on with this. Um, the argument against the icons is second commandment you shall make no graven image the arguments in favor of the icons are like if you look at the second commandment it's in the context of worship you can't make these things to worship them but when you look at Old Testament Israel God commanded the same people he gave the ten commandments to he commanded them when they made the tabernacle to uh, make pomegranates and, and two cherubim statues in the Ark of the Covenant God commanded them to make images and God even had them bow before the Ark of the Covenant, but they weren't worshiping the Ark. They were worshiping the God who sits above the Ark of the Covenant. And so honestly, I think theologically, those in favor of icons theologically are right. And the interesting thing is when the Protestant Reformation happened, they were iconoclasts because of the Catholic worship of statues and relics. And so they swung far and were acting like the iconoclasts and the uh, reformed churches got rid of all pictures, icons, their, their churches. You'd walk in, it'd be four walls with nothing on it. But you go to most Protestant churches today, it's not that way anymore. Again, I think as time went by, people realized, okay, we're just swinging hard against the Catholics because of what they were doing. But I think the spirit and argument of those who are in favor of the icons has won the day because it's a more biblical argument. And just to let you know, this comes up all the time, um, this comes up all the time today. Um, for example, Vodibachum, I love Vodibachum, but he's telling you you shouldn't watch The Chosen, and I happen to like The Chosen. He tells you you shouldn't watch The Chosen because it's violating the second commandment. You're making an image of Jesus out of this actor. That's just ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. Nobody thinks Jonathan Rumi's is Jesus. Nobody's worshiping Jonathan Rumi, right? Um, Instead, you go back to the argument that these guys made. God had them make cherubim statues, he had them make pomegranate statues, he had them make all sorts of beautiful artistic things to paint a picture of heavenly realities. And the author of Hebrews even tells us that the tabernacle and the temple paints the picture of heavenly temple realities. And so if God commands them to make images that makes them think about God and they're not worshiping them in a pagan way, then what's the problem? And so if somebody wants to make, like if Mel Gibson wanted to make Passion of the Christ to get you to have an idea of what Christ went through, that's not violating the second commandment. And if Dallas Jenkins wants to create a show that is somewhat based off Jesus and his disciples, that in and of itself is not violating the second commandment. Now, if you want to fault the show for adding dialogue that's not in the Bible or whatever, that's fine. Okay, but I think the, the, the director and maker of the show was very clear um, that you know this isn't meant to um, this isn't meant to uh, what do you call it? Um, replace the Bible reading. Like, you know, he's saying he's, they're just filling in gaps with what's plausible, but they're not saying that this is, is what's in the Bible, like the parts that aren't in the Bible. But the parts that are, they, they do, in my opinion, a good job with it. But again, people could debate this, but don't say it's a violation of the second commandment because they're not consistent. You go into the churches of the guys who are saying this and their children's church, they got little like gospel project cartoon pictures of Jesus and they got children's Bibles in their house, you know? So when they're reading the story, this was King David and look at big Goliath and the rock hits him in the head, dude, these guys, not dude, but these guys aren't, uh, they're not having like pictureless children, Bible books. So again, they need to be consistent, but anyhow, with the, uh, icon-clastic controversy, I know I didn't go over all the slides. I had a whole bunch of them. I gave you guys the, <laughs> the fast version, which is more than most people know. So that's all right. Um, you end up with the seventh ecumenical council, which is the council of Nicaea II. Um, And the years of that is 787, okay? Or wait, no, no, it wasn't seven. Yeah, 787 is the the second council of Nicaea. This is the seventh of the ecumenical councils. And this is the one that says, look, icons are okay. Of all seven ecumenical councils, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox agree with all seven. Protestants historically agree with the first six, but are iffy on the seventh. And it depends on what Protestant you talk to. But anyhow, let me conclude this. The Eastern Church and the Eastern Empire traveled very different path than that of the West. OK, we in the last two lessons talked about the Western church. Now we've caught up almost on the timescale with the Eastern church. And then next time we'll um, we'll talk about the Islamic invasions, which will then set us up for the next era of church history, which would be the Crusades. Um, but, yeah, just to, to sum it up, very different theology, a lot more fighting in the East over the Christology. You have the high point of their Christian empire with Justinian. Um, but after Justinian, the realities of Eastern and Western religious and political realities, it's just, it's different. It's only a matter of time till these two churches split and they finally will in 1054. Uh, but even as that's happening, the Eastern Empire is going to start to erode as Islamic invaders take more and more and more of their territory. The last, uh, last domino to fall is going to be Constantinople.